0: Philippians chapter 2, I'm reading verses 25 through 30 today. We're continuing our series in Paul's letter to the church in Philippi, a a church that he planted, the first church in what is considered to be modern Europe. It's a Grecian church, a Macedonian church. Paul visited uh, this church on his second and his third missionary journeys. He has a great affection for this church, and he writes this letter to the church in Philippi from a Roman prison with every reason to be frustrated, downcast, brokenhearted, but he writes in quite possibly the most joyous of methods imaginable. And we pick up today in Philippians chapter 2, verse 25, and it reads like this. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. The title of our message today is The Heart of the Body. The Heart of the Body. Heavenly Father, open your text to us anew. Open our hearts to receive from you afresh. Amen. Um. I'm going to use a metaphor to start off our conversation today. Um, Paul oftentimes speaks in metaphors when he preaches and teaches, and one of the metaphors that he uses most often when speaking about the church is the body. He oftentimes makes a correlation between this body of believers, collective, this organism, with the organism that you and I live in. And I want to further that conversation today and say, if every one of us, as the Apostle Paul says, has our own part and our own function, that I would argue that Epaphroditus is the heart. And because he's the heart, we're going to get to ask ourselves some big questions about what it truly means to be an integral and vital part of a thriving, living, breathing organism. Most of the vital organs in your body are unseen. Amen? Otherwise, things are bad. I mean, you have a heart, you have lungs, you have kidneys, you have a stomach, you have a liver, and, and if, you're, if you do this thing right, you'll never see them. Never. And yet, without any one of them, life would suffer. In fact, the most vital organ, your heart, that's pumping right now, and unless you've had six cups of coffee, you can't hear or feel is meant to be that way. It's meant to be wholly functional and successful at beating and producing a rhythm that gives life full of oxygenated and nourished blood to every other part of the body, and it is completely unnoticed every single day. And yet, if it stopped, everything would stop. And the big idea I would challenge you today, the big question I would ask you to ask yourself and the way in which you live as a Christian is a hard one actually, but I hope that you'll take it and be able to answer it in a new way this afternoon. It would be this, if you stopped right now, would anyone notice? Like if you ceased to beat, if you walked away from the church, if you just left, would we feel it? Our study today is an examination of another man in the Bible. Last week, we talked about Timothy, right? This beautiful son called to lead. Today, we're going to talk about Epaphroditus, this trusted servant called for more. You should know about Epaphroditus. Most people don't. He's only mentioned in this book and really only twice in this passage and then in the, the end in chapter 4. And, and And most people, when they preach through Philippians, they do this section. It's titled Timothy and Epaphroditus. And they read through verses 19 all the way through 30. And most of the times when pastors preach this section, it's really a conversation about leadership delegation. It's about what the apostle is trying to accomplish and how he uses people who are learning on the go, people who seem unqualified, to do great things. And that is absolutely true. But I am a Bible nerd. Amen? And I don't want just the surface stuff. Like if you're going to talk about a guy named Paphroditus, I want to know like what size shoe, favorite color, what's his meal, man? And so we study the life of Epaphroditus on purpose today to get a better picture of not who the leader chose to delegate to, but why he chose that person. Why was Epaphroditus the heart? You should know that Epaphroditus is a Greek. Unlike Timothy, who had one Greek parent and one Jewish parent, Epaphroditus is holy Greek. His name, Epaphroditus, means from the Grecian god of love, Aphrodite. His name actually means lovely. That's a good name. Lovely is his name. And he's Greek. And he lives in Philippi. Now, it's not written in the text, but it's important that we study the text and examine everything around us to get a better picture of who this man might be. Paul, as we're going to talk about in just a moment, refers to him in several ways, one of which is fellow soldier. And it's important for us to note that Paul uses that language to get a better picture of who he might be. Philippi, the city in which this church was planted, was primarily a retirement community for Roman soldiers. So many of the people who lived in Philippi had served under Rome, served as Romans, centurions, and mostly as praetorians. Those would be the formal guard of the emperor. Now, it's not written in the text, but Paul makes mention that Epaphroditus is a fellow soldier, and it stands to reason that there's a solid chance that this man who's called to serve was called to serve because he was disciplined and trusted. He may have been a Roman soldier. Now, where he ends up is pretty awesome, actually. I, I love because he starts off small, and we're going to walk, walk through his journey in the beginning part here. But church history teaches us that eventually he becomes the bishop or the pastor over the church in Philippi. He was a servant who then became a leader. And the best part is nothing in this text ever tells us that he was known for his charism- charismatic leadership or his teaching style. And don't we all sort of think those are like prerequisites for a pastor? But there's nothing in the text that tells us that he was a great orator or a dynamic leader. The only thing we know is that he was willing to die. I want to examine the text for you today and then we'll we'll talk a little bit about how this applies to your life. Um, I think perhaps the most important thing that we'll walk away from this today is that there are three things that would mark a true servant. Remember we talked about true sons and daughters last week but there are three things that are hallmarks of a true servant of God and they'll go like this in, in order if you have your book or you're taking notes. The first one is a longing for others. The second one is willing to experience near death on the journey. And the last one is a joy that we give to others. So let's do the first one, a longing for others. I think it's important that we look at it. Verse 25, Paul writes uh, from this Roman prison. He says, I thought it important, I thought it necessary to send Epaphroditus to you. He's my brother, my fellow worker, my fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister. Super awesome that Paul outlines who he is to him in this moment. You should understand that he's chosen, Epaphroditus is chosen as a messenger from the church. They, knowing that Paul was in prison and was suffering, decided it was important that they send a monetary gift to him in prison, and so they chose Epaphroditus to do it. They picked him as an errant boy, a messenger, someone to just carry an envelope. Look inside the envelope? Absolutely not. Just take it. And Epaphroditus does just that. He's trusted. And if it's true that he really is someone from the Roman guard, who better than to make the journey from Philippi all the way to Rome? Not an easy journey, especially not in the early days of the church when people didn't think that Christians had the best interests of Rome in mind. And he gets on the road. And Paul says, I thought it best to actually send him back to you because even though you thought he was a messenger, he has become so much more to me. Paul says, he is this to me. He's my brother. Now, we throw that word around all the time, amen? We call each other brother, sister. The church teaches you to do that sort of thing. And and I think it's a fun way to relate to one another. But in this day and age, to call each other brother was a little bit different. Most would have argued that Paul would have only referred to certain other teachers, apostles, and leaders in the church as his brothers. He would have called other people co-laborers or fellow believers. But when he calls somebody a brother, it meant that they had become more than just a servant. They had become like kin. And here's Paul, the Paul. Like at the time that he writes this letter, He's kind of revolutionized the world. I mean, this is the same Paul that writes two-thirds of your New Testament. He is the one whom we study mostly for the study of Christian doctrine. It's how we develop the how of what we believe. And when he writes this, there's not lost on the church in Philippi or anywhere else for that matter, the authority and power and wisdom that he has. And so when he writes about their servant, the messenger, and he says, I thought it best to send back to you my brother, the church would have been like, hold up, wait a minute. And I love that part about this because I think it's important that most of us recognize that who you are at home does not determine who you are in the gospel, in the kingdom. I think many of us have families or we even just have relationships at work or wherever it is that you kind of spend most of your time or identify most of yourself, and they've pigeonholed you into a certain place. Do I have anybody in this room who's got like an identity? They just think they just think you're this. They just think this one thing about you, right? And it can be very easy for many of us to sort of buy into that. You're just the black sheep. You're just the confused one. You're just the one who punches the clock. You're just the one who's lazy. You're just the one who's lonely. You're just the one who's this. You're just the one who's that. And I think the problem is for most of us is that because we hear those messages so often, because we don't have a different conversation as often, we very easily come be- become convinced that that is who we are. And so when we share our faith or when we get bold about our faith and we start to talk about what the Lord is doing and it's immediately shot down by those people, we get discouraged, we get reminded, oh yeah, that is, that's not who I am. And yet, Paul writes and he says, I know you sent a messenger, (laughs) but he's my brother. And he goes on and he says, he's not just my brother. I don't just hold him in high esteem and hold him close to my heart, but he is, check this out. He says, send to you my brother and fellow worker. This title would have been reserved for primarily the teachers of the new covenant. And yet he wasn't a teacher. He was just carrying an envelope. And so when he writes to them, he says, not only is he mine and I love him, but soon he will be over you instructing you on the king that we love most. Then he says this last word, it's the illumination of the elucidation, the hint that he was a soldier. And he says, he's my fellow worker and my fellow soldier. And I think this is important for us because Paul is trying to remind this church and us today that the battle we fight is not against flesh and blood. But the battle we fight is a spiritual battle. This thing about the gospel, this kingdom thing, salvation, faith, grace, mercy, It has nothing to do with the here and now and everything to do with the world that lives lives around us that is yet unseen. And he says, "Um, I'm glad you sent me the messenger. He's become so much more. And he really gets it. I can only imagine that the church in Philippi, after having read this text, would have been asking themselves, like, what in the world happened out there in Rome? Our sons are dreaming of college and we've been talking to our sons about college since like the day they were born, right? Every time I travel or Chanel and I travel, we always go find a college or university nearby to buy a hoodie for them. Right? And so they have hoodies from like every major every time I'm in a city, they get a hoodie. And then sometimes, you know, when you preach the gospel, you don't go to big towns, you go to the Permian Basin in West Texas, right? And so we'd have to go find like the small local college. And so, you know, my sons have a sweatshirt that says University of the Permian Basin. You know what I mean? <laughs> Dream big. I, and and I don't always I um, I don't always get the best stuff, but I always get them hoodies to remind them of what's possible and what's coming. And the reason for that is I believe that college or any experience that takes you out of your home environment and immerses you in something brand new is the single greatest opportunity for us to be exposed to new things and walk into our identity afresh. I mean, you, you know this to be true. Anytime you see a college freshman return from their first year in the summertime, and all of a sudden they call their mom Susan. You know what I mean? <laughs> Susan, Jeff, look. You're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Still mom and dad. I only tell that joke because I, I did that. And, and, and you've seen it when. When young men and women have gone off to basic training and just after 8 to 16 weeks have returned and they are wholly new. I think so many of us miss those opportunities because we've heard the words over our life and we let them limit us. Or we've been afraid of what might happen if we step outside of our comfort zone. Or maybe we've just ignored the call of the Lord to say, go and I'll tell you the rest on the way. And so when, when Epaphroditus just, just goes and he, and he arrives, something happens. And so when Paul writes back to the church, the place that he lived about who he is, he writes about a new man that they may not even have known. But to remind them that they're talking about the same person, he says, now listen, he's my brother, a fellow soldier. You remember your messenger? He's actually my minister. I could sit here forever. He says, you remember your nearly forgotten, overlooked, barely talked about, simple, small-minded, do little stuff kind of person? Well, God's used them to do something absolutely amazing. He says he was a messenger but became a messenger. A minister. Now, I'm a preacher, so I love alliteration, and anytime there's two matching words like that, I just got to stay on it for a minute. If you really want to be a minister, start off by just being a messenger. Amen. If you really want to be, you know, like Jesus, be willing to start at the janitor's position. If you want to sing, serve. If you want to preach, pray. If you want to do anything great, get on the ground and start right there. And Paul writes to this moment, he says, let me remind you we're talking about the same person. I know that you sent him as a simple errand boy, but he has become so much more to me. Because whom you've identified, the Lord has transformed and is an echo of the gospel message time and time again. When it was Simon who was asked of Jesus, who do you say that I am? And he said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus said, you're all different now. No longer shall you be called Simon, but Peter petrus in the greek cephas in the aramaic it meant rock same is true in the old testament abram was named abraham jacob named liar was transformed into israel one who wrestles with god the nature of the mission of jesus christ the nature of the journey of faith is transformation is change it is so that you are not who you are when you started And they didn't know this. The church in Philippi just thought, they were like, go carry that check to Paul. Come on back. We got more stuff for you to do when you get in. You can clock in then. The Bible tells us that Epaphroditus came and that he stayed and that he got sick. And and what I think is interesting here is that he served only in the fashion that he was called to, even if it seemed like less than. And he did it because he wasn't longing for title. He wasn't longing for recognition, right? He was longing to help, to be of help for others. Paul writes in the text, he says, he says, "Um, I thought it best to send him to you he identifies him by all these terms. And then, then in verse 26, it says, For he, that's Epaphroditus, has been longing for you all and has been distressed. You see, Epaphroditus missed his, his home. He was eager to go serve Paul, but he also had this burning desire to go back and serve the per- people that he had grown up around. There's a, a hallmark of a servant of God is that you, 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 you love people. You have a longing an earnest affection for others. I, I meet people all the time who want to do something great in the kingdom. It's a common refrain amongst pastors that they love to preach, but they're not so good with people. <laughs> and I'm like, that sounds terrible for your church. Or, and it's not uncommon, I, I'm one of these two, like a lot of preachers are actually introverts. I love quiet And yet, just because that's the way I'm made doesn't mean that's the way I should stay. In fact, in order to be a great leader, I've got to have great longing, love, and care for the people that I'm called to lead. Paul says, he's become all of this to me. And part of that process of maturing from from just a messenger into a minister is that he's developed a longing for you. He wants to come home, especially because he heard that you heard he was sick. Paul writes this this sentence here. He says, he's been longing for you all and he's been distressed. The combination of these two words, we're going to study, get a little nerdy for a second. Okay, The combination of the word longing and distressed in the Greek text is often married together. And the term that most Greeks use there is perilupos. It's the exact same word that is written of Jesus when he's in the garden of Gethsemane. When he's in the garden and beginning to pray, the Bible says that he has a heaviness on him. Not a heaviness of what's to come, but a heaviness of for whom it's coming. He has this deep affection. And you know the prayer, right? Lord, if there be any way that you can take this away from me, heaviness nevertheless not what I want but what you want Paul writes about Epaphroditus and he says he has the same burning grief to do what's right for you and I I think it's important that we just, just sit there for a second because that is what true service is Service is not showing up on time, though I really want you to show up on time. (laughs) Service is not staying late, but you know sometimes that's the one that sets people apart. Service is not just doing the job, it's not just doing the hard job, it's doing the hard job with a burning desire so that others might benefit for it. an earnest longing that somehow, through the simple act of winding cords or stacking chairs, some of you today might encounter Jesus like you've never done it before. True service has nothing to do with what I do and everything, with how I do it, why I do it, and for whom I do it. And see, we get, we get this mixed up all the time because because we fail to recognize that the fight we fight is spiritual and not natural. So we think about the tasks, we build checklists, we clock in, we clock out, we do what we're told, and we miss the marrow, which is a longing for others. We're gonna talk about service all day today and I wanna challenge you today that the best way for you to find where you fit in the church is where does your heart burn for us? Now, I want you to serve wherever God calls you to, but I don't want you to burn out. Amen? And the best plan against burning out is to find where you burn. You know, I'm desperate to see youth find Jesus. Great. Let's get you serving in Stoke. I'm desperate to see the kids discover the gospel. Great. Let's get you in Spark. I love making coffee. Yes! (laughs) Where you burn, right, is where you bring the most impact in the ministry. Paul says he's got this earnest longing and this distress because he found out that you were sick. And the truth of the matter is, is that yes, he did get sick. Epaphroditus had a near-death experience. Verse 27, it reads like this. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I love this picture of Epaphroditus. I think it's so common for most of us to have a quietly unspoken subconscious threshold of discomfort in our life. Like you're called to do something. How many of you have ever gone to work, and in the back of your mind, you've said, if they ask me to stay a single minute late, they can kiss my grits. You wouldn't say it, right? But you, you know it. You have some thresholds like beyond this, I simply won't suffer, right? You're laughing because you got your thing, right? I don't serve on holidays or Sundays. I don't work after five. I take a two-hour lunch, non-negotiable. And that's all fun when you're trying to get a job. When we're trying to hire people for jobs, you're like, you gotta be kidding me, Right? But most of us have sort of this level that it's like uh, beyond that line, I just, I simply won't. It's true in our work environment. It's true in our relationships with friends. We teach this, we teach boundaries. I teach everybody that I meet who's going through any interpersonal conflict about the power and efficacy of healthy personal boundaries, right? And I think sometimes we take that to an extreme. I say, nobody should ever speak ill on your name. And so anytime that someone in your life gets mad at you you're like you better watch out the way you talk to me and you're like wait no that's not what we're talking about i think it's human nature to set thresholds and boundaries that actually become walls and fortresses within which we isolate and insulate ourselves so that no one can challenge us but we talked about this in small group this week all the change happens teresa in the challenge And we see a picture of a man who's called to just be a messenger who becomes so much more. And the question you should ask yourself is, how? How does he go from from just a courier to a carrier of the gospel? The Bible says that that he, he suffered illness while he was in the presence of Paul. Now, you and I in this day and age, well, Two and a half years ago had a much different understanding of illness. For most of us, you could get sick and you'd be fine. Do you remember when you would go to work sick and be like, No biggie? Now, if I'm in any store and a person coughs, I'm like, Grab your things, we're not shopping here, let's go. <laughs> I'm done. But, but up until about two and a half years ago, most of us kind of thought about sickness in a, in a very minimal way. Unless you suffer from a chronic illness or chronic pain, most of us just sort of looked at it like, oh, I'll just go to the doctor, I'll just get the medicine, everything will be fine. But such was not the case in the first century church. If you were to get ill, it represented a real possibility for death without getting too crass. Like if you drank the wrong water, like it's a wrap, right? Yeah. And Paul says when, when the messenger came, he got sick, which implies to us that he had to stay. And he stayed for a little while. And he got so sick that he nearly died. And Paul writes, but God had mercy on him. I hope you don't mind that we're just doing this line by line all the way through the text. I think it's important that we get all of it. Paul says he got sick, he nearly died, but God had mercy on him, which means that he recovered. But I don't read anything in the text about Epaphroditus immediately bailing the hospital room of Paul's prison once he got healthy. The Bible says he arrived, he got ill, he recovered, and he stayed serving until Paul said It's time you go home. The reason we know about that difference is because Paul and Epaphroditus had heard that the church in Philippi had heard that he was sick. And remember, there are no emails or phone calls during this time. So someone else had to journey and deliver the message and return back. There's a significant period of time there. The difference between when he arrives as a messenger and when he's identified as a minister is that he's willing to stay even when it's hard You have a threshold of comfort. And I might argue today that the enemy loves that threshold. Oh, you're so comfortable. You kind of do nothing, don't you? It feels good though. They ask you to do a little bit, you just do a little bit, but never more. And as long as you just do a little bit, you can feed your own ego and say, look at me. Oh, I just do so good. And when the Lord whispers into your heart, I need you to do more, you go, whoa, hey, hold on. My pastor taught me about boundaries. (laughs) And the Holy Spirit's like, not me. I might argue today that the, the Lord who's whispered a big and mighty beautiful dream about whom you're called to be, whom you're called to serve, and the anointing that is called to... Flow from your life has far less to do with where you'll end up and far more to do with what you're doing right now at this season here. Like, are you willing to stay if it gets rough? At your job, if they say, Can you work weekends? What's your response? If you get home this afternoon and someone you love says, Sit down, we need to talk, what's your response? You know, I tell one of our, we, I tell our leaders all the time, and I'm trying to help most of our leaders who are growing into their roles to, to have hard conversations and take on challenging things. And it's not because I don't want to have them, but I don't want to have them. And I'm trying to make sure that everyone in our church grows into their role, the good parts and the bad parts. And one of the things that we learn is whenever you have to have a hard conversation, you know, when you have to have a hard conversation at work, a relationship, whatever it is, you know, the hardest part of that is the panic you feel before it. You know what I'm talking about? Have you ever talked yourself out of a hard conversation? Oh, no. They're going to punch me. They're not going to. What? No. It's your grandmother, and you just need to have an earnest, honest conversation with her. The hardest part with the hard parts of your life, ready? is the hard words you speak to yourself. It's how you criticize yourself as not being effective, and how you worry about the potential outcomes, many of which are not even possible. It's the way in which you narrate your story from a place of poverty, from a place of victimhood, from a place of perpetual failure that says, even though I know my God is undefeated, I'm not. And the reason that most of us never go from messenger to minister is we're unwilling to stay because the moment it gets hard, we speak those negative words into our heart and we fail we run we run back home and we're like i I don't know what i didn't like that i don't know what was possible and it felt like maybe but you know what i'd rather just stay a messenger that's safe for me and i I don't i don't love it here but i know it and there might be more but i don't want to hurt paul says he nearly died and he stayed. Now use your imagination. Remember we're talking about the first century church and Paul is in a Roman prison. So Epaphroditus gets sick while in this shelter that Paul lives in. It was likely that he was under house arrest, though he was under guard and key and locked to guards. Ready? If Epaphroditus was previously a Praetorian guard, he may have known these guards. He may have been in this house, and he may have become deathly ill, and all of his former colleagues and friends would have said, dude, let's get you out of here, to a hospital, away from this place, and he said, I'm good. How do I know that? How do I know that he said I'm good and didn't take up the offer to go to the hospital? Because Paul writes it. He says he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him. He speaks very clearly of a supernatural healing. Remember, Paul is not averse to telling the facts of the matter when they get in trouble. He explains how the problem was remedied, and when God moves, he explains how God moved. And so in this moment he says he was sick, he was dying, he was in prison with me, and it was bad. But you know what? God showed up. And I wonder how many of you are missing a miracle because you're taking the fast way out. You're taking the easy way out. The moment God says it's going to be really difficult, but if you'd hold on to my ever-changing hand, if you Trust me, I'll show you myself in a way you've never seen before and you missed it because you ran. I feel like I'm preaching better than you're talking back. I'm sweating, genuinely. I want you to ask yourself how many miracles you may have missed because it got messy right before it. I want you to ask yourself how many moments Did God give you an opportunity to say, trust me or trust you? And you were like, (laughs) I'll get you on the next one. Have you ever read that prayer? I'm really struggling right now, but I'm growing in my maturity. So next year, I'm really going to trust you. And the Lord's like, okay. I want to tell you right now that he wants to do great and mighty things in you, through you, for you, in front of us. But he might be inviting you to stay when it's hard to persevere under pressure. Now, how does Epaphroditus do this, right? I mean, how does he stay in the middle of this? I I mean, my wife is the kind of person who, when she gets sick, can still function very, very well. Uh, That's true of all wives, amen? (laughs) Every wife in the house could literally be dying and still doing the dishes, paying the bills, going to work. And every husband in the room gets like a sniffle. (laughs) And it's like, bam, cancel all of March. It's bad. Things are bad. My wife's like, are you seriously that sick? And I'm like, I don't know. How well are you going to take care of me? Right? My wife gets frustrated. She's like, come on, you got to get it together. And I'm like, I don't know what I'm thinking. I'm dying. Right? And the reason that most women, and I hate to beat up on you guys, but you absolutely know it's true. The reason that most women, especially women in a household where marriage is involved and where kids involved are able to persevere through discomfort is because they're convinced of the mission. Frankly, who's going to keep this house together unless she does? Right? She knows if I don't do, if mama doesn't do it, don't nobody do it. Right? Why? She's convinced of the mission. She knows that she plays a vital, important, integral role and it must be done so she's willing to suffer through discomfort so that things still come to fruition. Epaphroditus stays, he stays though he's dying because something has shifted in his heart and he recognizes, I matter right here, right in this moment. It turns out that I was called for far more than just carrying messages. I have been called to the apostle to sit by his side to bring him comfort, to bring him joy, to bring him peace, to, he says, minister to his needs. Epaphroditus is convinced that he matters in the gospel mission maybe that's why we don't stay is because we just don't know where we fit we don't know how we fit no one's ever looked at us and said you're in the right place it's so good to have you right here I think many of us have lived in a world where we haven't had a, a leader or a pastor or someone over us who's who's been generous with their words of encouragement I know as a pastor I've failed many many times to encourage people I've criticized more than I've constructed right and I've I've missed an opportunity to look people in the face and say, I don't know if I've told you this before, but without you, this thing doesn't run. That's why we take a moment to tell Gio that stuff because you may not even know what Gio looks like. Epaphroditus finds his place. He finds his purpose. And so he stays. Then in verse 28, the apostle writes like this. He says, I'm so eager to send him To send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, that I may be less anxious. So, receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Paul ends this part not with an underhanded compliment. He's not saying that they're lacking, he's saying he came to fulfill what you were unable to fill. But what he's really mentioning in this moment is I I want to send Epaphroditus back because I got to be honest with you, I kind of love having him here. But if I love him, if I find such joy and comfort, then I know that you will too. And this is the cool part of this relationship between Paul and the church. You see... Philippi, this church, they loved Paul. And so when they were trying to think who should we send to go send our love offering to Paul, they chose none other than Epaphroditus. They said, you know what? Got to be honest with you. Even though he's not mentioned, he's not recognized for all of these leadership qualities, there is nobody better than to send our heart. To Paul, that Epaphroditus, and when Paul writes back to the church, he says, "Gotta be honest with you, because I heard that you were sad that he was sick. I can't even think of any better way to encourage you or to bring joy to you other than sending him back." It's like this exchange between the two of them. They're saying, "You know, the best part of me is Epaphroditus. Oh yeah, guess what? We're gonna send Epaphroditus back." And I love that picture because it's it's exemplary of the influence and influence and impact. That believers should have, ready, no matter the room. I mean, a lot of you, we know you here. (laughs) Beautiful, joy-filled, Christian. But in other rooms, they don't know you like that. They They don't think of you in the same manner. And they wouldn't send you as their best representative of joy, love, and care. Is this convicting yet? It gets so quiet right here. It's so true, right? So many of us, we have a a personality from place to place. And when Paul writes in this moment, he says, I got to be honest with you, I can't think of a single person I would rather send back to you than him. Paul was blessed, blessed by the presence of Epaphroditus, not the presence that Epaphroditus brought. And when he wants to return the blessing to the church he loves so dear, he sends that gift right back. Now there's something powerful here to talk about that I think is delicate territory for anyone who's ever been sick. A couple minutes left. The Bible says that he was healed, amen. And the Bible says that he served, amen. And and Paul wants to send Epaphroditus back to Philippi because they're worried that he was sick and he wants them to be full of joy that he's alive. And and these two things are connected, this service and and this miraculous healing and, uh, and the joy that builds faith when others see the two. There's like this triangle of connection that I want you to see in your mind's eye for a moment. You see, Epaphroditus goes to serve in a minimal level. He sees the need is great, and so he stays in obedience to serve even more. He gets sick. He continues to serve and stay, and the Lord sees him in the middle of his service, sees him in his suffering, sees that he's committed even when he's struggling, and then by grace, by faith, by providence, the Lord comes in and heals him. And I don't want to overstep something. I don't want to overstate it and say that God heals those who serve. Because many of us serve and haven't seen a healing. And I know that you've had many pastors who have said, well, if you're not better yet, maybe you just need to pray more, serve more, have more faith. You ever heard that? And and they mean it well, amen? But you hear it as like you're not a good Christian, so God hasn't helped. And that's dangerous territory to be in. And so I never want us to overstep that line, but I sure want to push you right up to that line. I don't want to tell you that there's a corollary relationship between the way in which people who serve him sacrificially also receive grace in their areas of greatest need. I might say, if you've never tested this water and you need a miracle from the Lord, get to working for the Lord. My personal testimony is this. I went to treatment for drugs and alcohol addiction. You know this. I was an addict for 15 years. The last five, crystal meth, all day, every day. And I went to treatment for 28 days. And I got out, and <laughs> I had, like, no plan. Amen? So I went to church. And I was a singer, so I was like, I'll join the praise team. And, the, and it was a big black church, and so they were like, white guy, sure, come on up, let's try it. And they let me sing and I would worship and these songs would flow through me and I would weep. And there were times where we would sing songs and I would fall to my knees. In fact, one Sunday I was leading worship and I couldn't stand and and I was up front with the team and I wanted to lay down. I felt like I needed to lay prostrate before the Lord to weep. And our our pastor at the time said, I I love it, but you can't lead worship and lay on your face. Got it. That's ministry acumen. But the heart of the matter was this. You see, people thought I was a worship leader, but I was just a worshiper. And what they didn't know is that every Sunday when I would weep, I was weeping out my addiction. I was weeping off the curse. I was serving and he was molding me. You see, the truth of the matter is is that many of us have not been changed because we've been unwilling to let ourselves be on the potter's wheel in the potter's hands. Amen. You don't like being spun. You don't like to be shook up. You don't like to be drenched in water and squeezed and, squo- and it just changed. You don't like it because it's uncomfortable. And the Lord says, I have so much beauty to build in and through you, but you've got to let me do it. So I don't want to tell you today that the way to get whole and the way to get healed is to serve. But I want to tell you that if you ain't tried that, we ain't tried nothing. You haven't even started yet. You're just living on a wish. Paul says, I want to send him back to you. He nearly died, but you got to see him now. (laughs) You won't recognize him. I assure you that. He says, and when you get him, when he arrives, I want you to receive him in all joy. It's a beautiful phrase here. He says, I know that when you see him, you'll rejoice. and, And when you do, I want you to... Receive him with all joy. And then there's just this short little sentence that probably could lead an entire week's study for anyone who wants to serve. It says this, and honor such men. Paul says to them, when you meet the new Epaphroditus, the one who started low, nearly died for serving Christ, was transformed and he persevered. When you meet the new improved version of him, that's the model for you. He says, honor such men. In this time, in this day and age, when Paul would to write this, it would have been a clear directive to the church to place Epaphroditus in a different position than, ready, anyone else in the church that they had. He essentially says, you have no idea who he is. Set him apart, Ecclesiastes. Crown him. Trust him. He's your new leader. The model for leadership, according to Paul, is this selfless Christ-like service that longs for people, that is willing to die for the cause of Christ, and when they arrive, they're met with joy. Paul says, I'm going to send him back because I know that you're going to love it when he's back. You've got to meet him. He's so funny. He's so good. He's so kind. It's wonderful. You're just going to have such a great time. The model, selfless service, and those who bring joy. That's what leaders do. That's what Jesus did. That's why at our church, you guys can come up, the fruit of the spirit that we want to be known for is joy. The fruit of the spirit that I want people when they walk out of this church to be filled with is peace, sure, that's cool. (laughs) Love, yeah, wonderful, but joy. Because I don't want you to just feel love but still be cranky. Come on, somebody. (laughs) I don't want you to be peaceful but sad. And Paul says, true servants burn for others. They light a fire in their life that never goes out and they're willing to be burned up for it. And when they're around us, well, the whole day changes. The heart of the body, that's who we aspire to be. Don't seek to be the head, that's Jesus' role. Don't seek to be the shoulders, he doesn't need your support, amen. Seek to be the heart. Unseen, always useful, pumping, supporting, and giving life to everyone. Amen? Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we love you. God, we thank you for the story of a man who might be overlooked, but we wanted to spend some time because if you mention him, it matters to us. And perhaps overlooking this story is one of the reasons that we as the North American church have missed the opportunity to find great leaders we always seem to want to promote the seen and the gifted. We always aspire to those roles. We always see the lights and we think that's true Christianity. I want to be like that. But your word says true service, true Christianity like Jesus. It's unseen. It's barely noticed. But it's driven by a love for one another. So Father, today, Birth that love in our heart today. Give us a longing for the people in our row and in our seats that we might feel such a need to earnestly serve them that we would be willing to die for them. God, we trust you with our lives implicitly. And God, we ask that you get your great glory through us, that everyone we meet might be filled with joy, joy unspeakable. Joy that surpasses all darkness in us and for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand to your feet? Let's worship one more time as a church.